This week on Art on the Air, we interview two documentary photographers, John Lowenstein and Mariah Carson, who are both part of South Shore Art's current multi-artist exhibit in the Bachman Gallery. This is it, a human-centered view of us running through January 8th. Our spotlight is on Footlight Players' holiday production of The Holiday Channel Wonderthon with director Denise Barkop. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art, and show the world Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM and WVLP 103.1 FM, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming at WVLP.org, and every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, also streaming live at LakeshorePublicRadio.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art on the Air is available on our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our shows are available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for more information about upcoming shows and interviews. And we'd like to welcome to Art on the Air from Footlight Players, discussing what's coming up in December for their great show, uh, we have the director here, Denise Marco. She's going to tell us all about what's happening uh, at the Footlight Players. Of course, that's at 1705 Franklin Street in Michigan City. You can find out all the information. Denise, welcome to Art in the Air Spotlight. Welcome, Denise. Good morning. So tell us about your show that you got coming up in December. Sounds like it's a lot of fun. It is a crazy, crazy, crazy show. Um, it's a satire or a spoof on the Hallmark Christmas movies. And instead of a couple, they have six cute couples that go through the whole sad situation, meet cute, goes wrong, grand gesture, and happy ending all at the same time. There are two narrators that help move it along and get the audience actively involved with timed responses. Um, So... (laughs) Some of the funny, funny area occurs at the outdoor scenes. Mm -hmm. When you have all six couples doing different activities that you see in these movies, like throwing snowballs, ice skating, shopping for Christmas, decorating trees, sleigh riding, and it all occurs on stage at the same time. (laughs) Wow. Yes. (laughs) And it's, it's been kind of a challenge for directing, but it's been a lot of fun. It takes place in Hopewood Falls, Vermont, and you have all those different setups with the couples that you see in the, in the movies. 
And the narrators, you get to vote for your favorite couple. And the narrators push them off stage when it's just too many, too much. And call them on stage when they're going too slowly. So we have all that (laughs) stuff going on. So it really is an audience interactive uh, production then. It is. It is. Come and have fun because it's going to be a lot of fun. How long have you been in rehearsal for this? Have you started yet, I'm sure? or Yes, we did. We started a little early. We started um, October 10th, and there are 17 cast members in the show. Boy, that scheduling must be outrageous. <laughs> it is outrageous. Uh, it was I spent hours trying to get the schedule together, and then we lost a couple cast members, joined some cast members, replaced them. And so all that went out the window. So, but they're an excellent cast and they, they are there every night that they can be. I finally just said, uh, the, sch- the, the timing is here. If there's a problem, just let me know. So that's the way we ended that. Very good. So, uh, and um, you're going to get coming up in Tech Week beginning of December. So that'll be your Tech Week and everything. Tell us a little bit about your directing history. You have uh, been directing there for some time. No, actually, uh, this is only the second show at Footlight I've directed. I directed last year's Christmas show, Miracle on South Division Street. I choreographed quite a few shows at Footlight. I've choreographed at 4th Street, at Memorial Opera House, up at the Old Scotties, up in New Buffalo. And um, I've worked at Dune Summer Theater. But most of my directing, I did at South Central at the high school. Okay. For for quite a few years. And what kind what kind of shows did you do there? Uh, we did both musicals and straight shows. So we did Curious Savage, see how they run. Um, Oliver, uh, I'm trying to think of oh, South Pacific shows like that. Ah, excellent. Bajor, which was one of my favorites, but you can't get it anymore. <laughs> oh no! Okay. <laughs> so, well, you have uh, some other things coming up. Uh, this will air like uh, middle of uh, November. So like on Saturday, November 19th, tell us about what you have going there and what's coming down the pike for uh, the Light Players. 2023. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Saturday, November 19th is an improv group called Improductions, and they're going to perform um, that Saturday. So I am not terribly familiar with that particular improv group. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they're like. They're supposed to be quite good. We've had them. Oh, we've had him on the show, and uh, he's actually one, one of them that's uh, leading the group. Uh, actually, works uh, teaches at Second City. So yeah, it should be excellent. Yeah, yeah, it should be great. <clears throat> and and then for 2023, did I read Oliver's happening? Yes, Oliver in will be in March, from the third to the nineteenth, and Laura Meyer is directing that. And then to wrap out, wrap out the rest of the season, you have uh, something else. Uh, Murdered to Death. Murdered to Death will be in May. directed yeah. by Dee Piotrowski, and that's in May. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now, is your uh, current show, the holiday show, have music in it? Is it music or? It is not a musical, but it does have music. It has um, underscoring Christmas music ah. that reflects things that are going on stage. Very good. 
So I'm trying to imagine the set for all of those scenarios. <laughs> yes, Tony Thomas has designed the set, and it is going to be quite interesting between he and Ken Sidney. Uh, they they both have come up with quite a intriguing set. I'm anxious to see how it works, actually. So um, there are basically three scenes that we have to change to, and we need the max amount of room on stage for all our people. Right. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you can get tickets and information about uh, the show itself, again, reservations and such. Uh, Call Footlight Theater. It's 219-874-4035. Yes. And we have now taken charge cards, so you can charge as well as pay cash at the door. The tickets are now $17 a person, but we also have coupons available at the Footlight and Friends website. Oh, that's excellent. Well, that's going to be the Holiday Channel Christmas Movie Wonderthon, December 2nd through 4th, 8th through the 11th at Footlight Players on Franklin Street in Michigan City. That's Denise Marco. She's the director. Thank you so much for coming on Art on the thank Air you. Spotlight. Yeah, thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. We appreciate this. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art in the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. This is Pledge Week for your public radio station. And Art on the Air encourages our loyal listeners to support this station by making a monthly sustaining pledge so we may continue to bring you this great program. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP, 103.1 FM. From South Shore Arts about their upcoming exhibit, which is real exciting. It'll be opening uh, November 11th and running through January 8th, and they'll have a reception on November 17th. It's called This Is It. We would like to welcome John Lowenstein to Art on the Air. John specializes in long-term, in-depth documentary explorations that confront the realms of power, poverty, and social violence throughout the world. He uses photography, moving images, experiential prose, and personal testimonials. John has spent decades documenting the emotional and physical changes of Chicago's South Side, which is where his home is. Thank you, John, for joining Larry and I on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. Hi. 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 Nice to uh, talk today. Well, John, we always like to start out our interviews, like kind of explore your history, uh, like your biography. I always like to say how you you got from where you were to where you are now. So we want to hear about early influences growing up, where you grew up, college, you know, but all the ways in between and how photography became part of your medium. Yeah. Whether that started in elementary school, what, you know. Yeah. Um... So, yeah, I was um, a, I grew up outside of Boston, Brookline, Massachusetts, and my dad is an anesthesiologist and researcher, and my mom is a poet and a writer and artist, and so I kind of had both of those influences, my early photographic um influences were probably my grandfather he loved taking pictures but I, so i like taking pictures from a very early age when i had like a brownie camera you know and i had a you know they my parents helped with that to get me involved with a little bit 
But I really, really kind of, my first probably element, there are two things I look back as being very influential. One was my mom gave me magazine work by Diane Arbus when I was probably 10. And I was like, why are you giving me this book? But it was really, I thought it was super cool. I saw Richard Avedon's In the American West at the bookstore. And I just, it like was like searing to me. And when I was about 12, they did a, um, in the Boston Globe magazine, Sunday magazine, that is a story about James Vanderzee. And he, I just remember thinking, this is so cool. Like the guy was photographing his community and he took it with these, you know, large format cameras. And he was, so he was photographing history. And I just remember being looking at the images and reading about his life and thinking, wow, that's amazing. And those three kind of experiences, I think, looking back, have really influenced the way that I work and the way that I think about photography and, and, and interaction in some sense from the very early parts. I can see where that influence, like now that you mention um, yeah. James Vanderzee, I can see the influence on the way you take photographs mm-hmm. and the way you see the sub, you know, your what you're looking at. Well, early early on, did you have like high school experiences? Uh, uh, obviously, probably working in film and everything, and or did you just uh, venture out pretty much on your own? Uh, yeah. So in high school, I took one class in my freshman year, I believe, and then I couldn't get into any more photo classes for two, three years. I tried, and I kept on. They just they didn't have many to get in. I tried to edit. I couldn't get in, and I thought I'd be a writer. My big influence is were writers, you know, and my teacher, one of my favorite teachers was uh, Miss McDonald. She was actually my eighth grade teacher and my uh, high school teacher. And uh, she moved to the high school when I went there. And she, you know, so I thought I'd be a poet, but I always liked photography, but I thought I'd be a poet, right? So I thought I was going to write. I, th- I thought, oh, I'm going to be this, you know, great American novel or write. poetry. I wrote a lot of that. But honestly, once I got to college, I took a pickup, you know, like basic pickup uh, photo class. And um, it was just, I stopped writing. I was in the undergrad writers workshop at the University of Iowa. And after that, it's almost like <laughs> writing just went out the window as I just remembered how much fun photography is. Right. And so uh, Iowa, that's kind of a big cultural change uh, coming from Brookline, isn't it? Oh, man, I keep making all these really big, you know, changes over time in my life. And, yeah, coming from Brookline, people were writing cows on my yearbook. You know, they just thought it was the funniest thing going to the Midwest. Nobody was going to the Midwest from Brookline, from Boston, from where I was in Boston. It was, you know, the coast, New York, you know, you know, I was in a variety of classes that kids would just look down on that. But for me, I thought, yeah, it's a great place for writing. And it was, I wasn't really the most academic oriented person. I was, I liked what I liked, but if the classes I didn't love, I wasn't super engaged. But when it came to the things I loved, I loved them and I did them really intensely. Kind of remained. 
So what kind of subjects were you gravitating toward in that, like when you became reintroduced to photography? What type of photographs it, were you taking? It was it was really like, at first it was just experiments, like experimental photography. But very shortly it became people photography. Mm-hmm. All my work was very quickly street people, my roommates, my life. Just in college it really became in a way, a template for how I saw photography, how I see the world in some ways was starting to become clear. I was photographing really what was going on in my world around me. So on Friday nights, weekends, I did project on parties. You know, it was like I was like showing the parts of things that maybe were fun. But then I also did. um, Yeah, it was people, people and you know, I really just like taking the camera and exploring and hanging with people and seeing what their lives were like. And so what back then, kind of what started you down the path to develop the documentary style? You like shooting people. And uh, and we will talk more about the evolution of how your current work is, which is very interesting and layered and things. But uh, so when you were shooting people, what were you looking for or just kind of documenting what was around you? Well, I had a very interesting teacher who actually relates to this uh show because when i was in college john kimmick javier was, was my teacher he had just moved from chicago and he had always studied in the art department but he came to the journalism department and i was kind of in between the art and journalism department at in college and at that time honestly there was a real big distinction between your photojournalists your art photographers, you know, it was like your color people and your black and white. <laughs> it was all those things that have melded completely commercial, editorial, all these things that basically are just like documentary photojournalism. Honestly, the languages are like melding around and influencing each other because of the internet and because of the ubiquity and way that photography and visual mediums can be shared so quickly and effortlessly now but back then it was a big deal to hear like oh it's okay to like try a different way of seeing because photojournalism was really straight it was like very rigid and i found that kind of for me very constricting yet i found that sort of um constructed art world at the time that was being put forth like um, where people were making models and photographing them. I found that stuff also constricted because I wasn't interested in it. So it was like finding a medium between the documentary, the photojournalism and the art. And I really took from John Kimmick, who was my mentor, that that was possible, that, that you could experiment and you could be exposed to all these different ways of thinking about the world and representing the world for top, you know, visually and also the subject and what you wanted to say. And so I did that. And then, you know, frankly, this show that we're talking about is so exciting because it's really showing a line of my, my teachers and also my colleagues who I've worked very closely with in John White, who was my teacher, Stephen Mark, who was my teacher, 
and myself and then Carlos Javier Ortiz, who's a very close friend and, and was a young photographer when I was a little bit further along when he started City 2000. I remember when he brought his um, portfolio of carnies and and it was just a slide sheet and, and, and the, you know, I, I was like, hire this guy. I mean, he's, he's young and he's trying and he's got a good eye and he's like in there just making pictures. And that's the whole thing. So this show is really a unique kind of opportunity to see the influences of all of us, how we work and learn from each other. And I know there's other amazing photographers who I'm not as, I haven't worked as closely with, but I'm honored to be in the show with. So, but those four men, us four, like, it's just so neat. So, yeah. So, John, um, where was the first place you, in, in your documentary work, where was the first place out of your area that you traveled to to document something? Um, so, they're probably the first place was Spain, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Spain. Um, cause you know, I always had wanted, I'd studied Spanish for years in school and I was kind of wanted to go somewhere and learn. And so I, I, I said that to, um, to John and he was like, Oh, well, I'm going to the Basque country next year. So why don't you, uh, you know, why don't you apply for these grants and this is how you do it. And it was just like, so amazing. I was like, really? And he, yeah. And he, so he helped me get grants to go and I ended up having the most amazing experience because I was there like we'd go to these small towns in the Basque country and and go and shoot things side by side and travel together sometimes and other times I just go out and do my own thing so I, I, I just went off I, I I like didn't hang with any of the American students I just learned Spanish I went every chance I got, I went to another small town to photograph and went all over the place, just photographing all the time. So it was, it was truly an, a great eye-opening experience. First documentary project. And it was, it was about the Basque country and it was just so good to be out making pictures in a place that was different from my backyard, you know? Right. You know, some people think of documentary photography as similar to photojournalism. You kind of touched on this and photojournalism tends to be that is what is happening, no alteration whatsoever. Where documentary, and especially your work, seems to open up a whole new way. Some of the things you have different layers of material, or not material, but, you know, yeah. subject matter. And, you know, it's it's highly produced and everything. So why don't you discuss that? You know, photojournalism, we kind of know is, you know, what you see, like, you can't, you barely can alter anything except maybe the brightness levels or, you know, contrast a little bit. But discuss what you do. Well, I work in that tradition. My work is really straight. It's just I use the, the materials that are available to me, but then I also have an artistic practice that kind of evolves. So it's almost like a that is true. Like in documentary, I feel like there's more opportunities to experiment. Although journalism, frankly, is opening up a lot and I think is acknowledging the need for different languages to be included. So, yeah, but my, you know, the art, my artistic practice, like the historiologies, which is basically I photograph and then I say historiologies because like living, you know, in, in Chicago on the south side, you have like this kind of amazing history that's just saturated all around you. And you go to other places like I share my time now in, between Canada and here 
And out here, that's just like they there's just not as much. It's so new. So it's like Chicago has all this kind of like industrial history that's just sitting there. There's these plaques that you you're basically surrounded by history and then it's all changing and evolving and in place. And so I try to just take graphite. When I was a kid, I did graphite grave rubbings. So I started to think, how do I actually communicate that sense of history and the photographs and the issues? So I start going into the, you know, there's a part of the Oakwood cemetery that has an old basically an abandoned Jewish cemetery because communities to be Jewish people would be buried there. And like, um, I started rubbing that on because that was sort of talked to me, like about my own history, about diaspora. And who are the people? Why did people come to the South Side? You know, how did that change? It wasn't always, you know, African American. It was, you know, it changed over many years. Each wave of successive migration coming to the place for different reasons, for an opportunity to work for a better life. And so the issues that we're facing today in America play out in the actual structures of the place. And then I try to represent them both in the direct photographs of people in the landscapes that I make and also in my artistic practice of films, um, you know, these grave rubbings, these rubbings or whatever, historiologies, and also in the films I do. The films are so compelling. I just, and I appreciate the art, but I find um, the actual document, the documenting of the photographs, the ones that Larry was, I, I find those just, um, I, you just can't take your eyes off of them. You know, you, they're just <laughs> um, true, true moments. And I appreciate the documentary part of it. Well, of course, I appreciate the artistic things that you do with them afterwards as well but i really i watched every single film and i yeah and look through all of the images i just had you know quite a wonderful week of really going in depth with your work and um i just uh, the style of the films are so wonderful and i really i really um like when you were first talking about doing the long feature i'm i'm um like it would be interesting to see what that would be, but these shorter yeah. ones are just so immediate and so accessible. I really appreciated that you went in that direction. Thank you. Yeah, the long one, the feature is, it's almost like going from poetry to like the novel, right? And it's like all of a sudden that um, almost, um, I don't know how to describe it, but you have to start to think about how do you build story and narrative and who is this audience, whereas the shorts just can be what they are, which is just these moments in time or voices of the community or, um, I mean, I like my the 12 screen film that I did where it's a combination of what I've witnessed, what I lived and the change of surveillance society and social media coming in and then the reality that we know that there's all this violence that's being perpetrated outside and inside that you know is there that sometimes you see the people are living it um, in the film. And at the same time, it's like, they're just 
kids, right? They're just right. I know. And so it's like a really weird place to live in. And it seems like that that shorter thing just makes it so much more powerful and distressing. You know, like it would be it would be numbing if it was too long because it's just so distressing. So it's just it just seemed like a very you know, you really found that good amount of time to make a very strong statement. You know, John, uh, something for our photographer listeners, what equipment do you use when you go out and shoot, uh, especially your still photography and film uh, work? Oh, I use all different types of cameras. I use, um, I've done, in this in this show and the work, the work that I do, you'll see Polaroids, mm. um, basically like film you can't buy anymore. Um, you see wet plate cam, um, wet plates, which are basically old time where I put, make the chemistry and pour it on the plate. Very slow process from the 1880s, 1850s, 60s, you know, right after the daguerreotype. And then I do, honestly, iPhone. So in the same show, you're seeing really a history of the language of photography that we use and for documentation over the past 150 years. And so in that practice, in a way, I'm also tracing the language of photography that was used to document, you know, the migration and, and, our, and our country. And so today I see a big connection between these different mediums and that there's some way to interact with the, with these different ways of seeing each one gave me a different way of approaching and a different access. The Polaroid was great because I could give people a picture right there. The daguerreotype is just fun and people really find it fascinating. So beautiful. And they kind of, thank you. And they find it kind of amazing to connect to that past and have to sit so still. And then I love the iPhone, which I started using because it echoes that with the style, but it allowed me to just kind of go into places much more quickly than, and not have to be the photographer. I was just at that point, I'm just a resident in the community. Another person with a phone. That's right. A resident. And so each one you see, like some are made of the, um, you know, when Dominic's was closing their store in um, on Jeffrey Boulevard on 71st Street, I was photographing the end of that store, which was a big deal because for nine years we didn't have a right. uh, another store in the neighborhood, uh, a real supermarket. So, you know, it was a big deal to show that. And so I'm photographing when that's happening. I'm going to corner store. I'm going to crime scenes. I'm going posters and the ephemera, everything that's. I'm just experiencing. So it all kind of mixes together. And the book that I'm doing will be coming out with Hatcha Kantz, which is a German publisher, real cool people. And we'll be doing the first book, which is coming out in 2023. So I'm really excited for that. You can go to Hatcha Kantz, you can go to my website, get that book and sign up for pre-orders. And it's just exciting to be finally putting that out. And then there'll be follow-ups on the project going to be a multi-part series you know we're getting close to wrapping up is there anything that you want to do uh, that you haven't done and then maybe tell us about your website how people can get in touch with you so we can also talk about the show real quick 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so the you can get to me on Instagram at John Lowenstein. A you know at J O N L O W E N S T E I N, or on my website johnlowenstein.com. And yeah, there's a lot of, I I haven't done, and I want to do so many things. I think we're really in this very critical moment in on the South Side, and in America where you know it, the community. Is gentrified pretty rapidly so uh it's important to pay attention and uh support communities that are overlooked and not um left behind well we appreciate you coming on art in the air john lowenstein he's going to be in the this is it a human-centered view of us uh that's at the south shore arts uh, exhibit dates are november 11th through the uh, january 8th and they'll have an opening reception thursday november 17th 5 to 8 p.m and you can meet john and all the rest of the artists in person john thank you so much for sharing your work and background on art on the air thank you so thank much you. thank you so much for taking the time to invite me and for putting us all on yeah this is very exciting and it's great to be a part of this show with some of my heroes thank you john and as a reminder if you'd like to have your event on art in the air spotlight or have a longer feature interview email us at aota at breck.com that's aota at breck b-r-e-c-h dot com You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP, 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Mariah Carson to Art on the Air. Mariah is a Chicago-based artist and freelance photographer. She studied photography and printmaking at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and her work has been exhibited and published internationally. She specializes in editorial and studio portraiture and strives to capture real people with honesty and clarity and creates memorable images that tell compelling stories. Thank you, Mariah, for joining Larry and I on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. It's so nice to meet you because I was familiar with your work previously through your Modern David series because my friend David Fink was one of the models for it. So so I was really happy to see your name pop up with this exhibit. Oh, thank you, Esther. Yes, uh, David Fink was a wonderful David and participant of the Modern David Project. <laughs> yeah, he's a terrific, terrific, terrific person. Well, Mariah, I'm being a photographer myself. I kind of want to hear about your origins in photography. My quick story is my dad gave me an old roll camera once, and I took a lot of pictures. I think I was probably like seven or eight. And of course, I opened the back of the camera to see the pictures, and of course, they weren't there. So that's my origin story in photography. (laughs) So tell us about how you got started. I suppose I got started, I grew up in a house that was very accommodating to the arts. My father and grandfather were both architects. My mother compulsively took photos of my sister and I, and it was something that was always fostered in our home. Um, And I was able to take a lot of art classes and went on to art school at SAIC. So photography, I've always enjoyed it, and I really enjoy working with people. So that kind of led me to be a, a portrait photographer and work with a lot, a wide range of people of different backgrounds doing editorial work. You know, one of the questions I always ask is uh, for our photographer friends that listen to the show, what kind of equipment do you use now and maybe over time? I currently use a Nikon DSLR. So it's the last of the DSLRs. And for 
I, I try to keep things pretty minimal. Um, I typically work with myself or with one assistant for Modern David and for American Legion. I worked alone um, for the a few of the portraits that are included in the This Is It exhibit. I did have a, a lighting assistant who also came and helped to do some audio recordings of interviews of the veterans for the Montford Point Marine Association. But I, I do keep things pretty minimal because I really like to show people for who they are and what they look like. Uh, and photography can be, it can be really a, a little bit of a lie, but it can also be very real in capturing who somebody is and what their story is. So tell us about, you do kind of editorial portraiture, expand on what you just were indicating there, you know, as opposed to something that's highly manipulated in Photoshop and such like that. Yours are pretty much, I mean, obviously there's some balancing done, but tell us about that process of when you take a portrait, like like for your American Legion uh, book. So yeah, for American Legion, all of the images uh, were taken of people. Sometimes I would ask them, oh, can you sit back down, I really liked the way that looked, or um, can you come a little closer to the window or something like that. But I didn't really choreograph things. I wanted to show people as they were in their settings. Comfortable. Exactly. Like, um, and especially working with a primarily elderly group of people, that's really nice because a lot of them are in a reflective stage of their life where they were very open to showing me their homes or their collections or what they really enjoyed about their community. And they also, because they were mostly retired, were able to spend an extended period of time with me. So did they that, share, did they share stories about their service? I really kept it very open-ended depending on the person. So a lot of people have a lot of trauma surrounding their service. Mm -hmm. So if they wanted to speak with me about their military service, uh, I was very happy to hear whatever they were open to sharing. Um, but a lot of people had a lot of PTSD or what's called moral injury surrounding their experiences. So. I'm not a therapist and I'm not really set up to kind of work with somebody at that level. So if they were open to sharing something, they could, but I was really clear with them that the the kind of information that I was looking for to work with them ranged from their service in the military to their service in their community as members of the American Legion. How did you pick the four places you chose? What was, I know that it was populations under 1,000, but other than that, how did you find your places? The first location that I had, where I had thought about the project, I was, I took a really long road trip through rural Nebraska to think about what I wanted to do for a long-term project. And I was offered a gallery show at the nonprofit gallery Firecat Projects in Chicago. Our favorite, Stan Klein. Yeah, Stan Klein. Yep. <laughs> Stan. Love Stan. Yeah, we love Stan. Um, and so he 
he's so kind with the artists that he works with and he really leaves it in this real open-ended way that you can do whatever you want. It doesn't have to be something for sale. It doesn't have to be something that, it doesn't have to be anything. It can be anything you want. And I was doing editorial work and I learned that if you were curious about something, you could go out and ask questions and people were generally really willing to talk with you about whatever you were curious about. So in driving through rural Nebraska, I saw in all these really small towns, uh, VFW halls, Moose Lodges, Masonic Lodges, and American Legion posts. So I had taken a photograph of one in Cody, Nebraska, which has a population, or it had a population at the time of about just over 100 people. And it was this incredibly large structure. And I took a picture of it and I printed it out. And I, when I got home, I hung it behind my computer in my office and was looking at it. And it, it made me really curious what was going on inside that building and what the American Legion was all about. So uh, in doing research, I decided I wanted to work with, with that post. And then the post in California, I was wandering around in the desert trying to think about or find, find an American Legion post in a small town. And somebody suggested that I go out to the Salton Sea and when I saw that post, it was in this super desolate landscape. And it was a trailer structure surrounded by a chain link fence. And it was closed at the time. And I took a picture of that and I thought, I definitely want to go back there. Uh, the other two locations, one that's in Franklin Grove, Illinois, it's a rural farming community about 100 miles west of Chicago, I had a friend working at the Nechusa Grasslands. So he thought that that might be a good location for me to work with. And then the fourth one was in uh, rural Virginia, but a, like coastal Virginia. And that one, my sister, Erin, who helped me with the project, and she helped me with a lot of research and editing, she actually found that one for me. I was trying to find something that was on the East Coast and she was looking up rural populations, combating with the American Legion, post listings and Google street views. And she saw that one and it was a converted grocery store with a giant American flag painting on it. <laughs> and she said, all right, I found you. I found the last one. This is it. This is perfect. So they all had slightly different features, like some had bars, some didn't have bars, some had, some were open to the public, some were not open to the public. Um, so I, I wanted to cover a wide range of location in a wide range of places, in a wide range of communities that all had the common thread of these American Legion posts and how they connected the community of the people that lived there and what they did in relation to the population. 
how long did it take you to assemble the photos that went into the American League project? I mean, and the other question I'm curious about is why not VFW also? Did you focus just on American Legions? I did. I, I re when doing the research, I was primarily interested in American Legion based on their mission statement and the difference between the American Legion and the VFW is that to be a member of the VFW, you had to have served in active combat. Right. And to be a member of the American Legion, you had to have served during active wartime. So it was, it offered membership to a wider range of people. And part of their other mission, part of their mission statement is also that they are dedicated to creating peace and nonpartisanship. Right. So those things were of interest to me. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are dual members of both organizations. And um, when you were sending this for a book, did you have a book in mind or an exhibit in mind at first? I really had the exhibit in mind primarily. And then after starting the project with the Franklin Grove, Illinois post, it, I quickly realized that I should take more detailed notes and record more information that people were sharing with me because it didn't seem like their stories had been shared in a more historical way. Not that it's a historically perfect project by any means, but I felt like it, it deserved to have more elements to the project than just visual images that people's stories needed to be told in a written way as well. So, no, it, it wasn't originally conceived as a book. And with the help of my friend who's a graphic designer, it, it became a book and it was a really overwhelming amount of material that we sifted through to try to concisely tell people's story in tandem with one or two images of them. Okay. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP, 103.1 FM. Then the editing process, you must have had tremendous amount of material to go through with all these uh, uh, people telling you a story. And of course, you wrote the uh, narrative that's in the book, correct? Yes, I did write the narrative. I will say I had five different editors help me. <laughs> so it was the whole project. I, I relied heavily on a lot of people from my community, my family and the veteran community to assist me in compiling this project because it did the photography took about three years. I did a year of research and then about six months of just focusing on the book a lot to get it down to a 256 pages. Yeah, and is any of that work going to be in the This Is It exhibit? Yes, there's 11 images from American Legion featured in the This Is It exhibit. And 
I continued working with veterans after the project was done, going to American Legion conventions and doing some talks in conjunction with previous shows. So in 2019, I did a brief documentation of the Monfort Point Marine Association Chapter 2, which is located in Chicago at 71st and Vincennes. So there's five portraits of people that are members of the Monfort Point Marine Association added to the show. And their story is also very interesting in that they, the Monfort Point Marines were the first group of segregated Marine uh, allowed into military service in in the Marine Corps. So I have I have two things I'm wondering about. When you went into the community, how long did you stay at a stretch? And I'm sure it varied, but what would be like the greatest length of time at one at any given time that you spent within the community? And then my other question is: so this was a few years ago. Have some of the families stayed in touch, or some of the the um, veterans that you photographed? Yeah, so some of the posts I did travel to frequently. So the the one that's in Franklin Grove, Illinois, I was able to kind of bounce back and forth for Veterans Day, Memorial Day on a more frequent basis because it was only 100 miles away. And the nature, um, the nature preserve of the Nechusa grasslands would let me stay there. So it was a really convenient place to travel back and forth to. Um, The further away locations, I either had to drive or fly or fly and drive to in that they were very remote. So I camped at those locations and I just kind of had a tent and a portable studio with me. (laughs) And I was like, would you uh, stay a week or two weeks or... I would stay usually two to three weeks at a time. So it was a pretty immersive experience in the communities when I was there. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, and some of the people I did stay in contact with, um, especially the ones in Cody, Nebraska, I joined their auxiliary unit. So I'm still a member of their auxiliary unit. And... I do have a little bit more frequent communication with them. Um, And then sometimes I get this sad phone call or email from a family member saying, oh, you know, uh, my father has passed away. I found your card. I wanted to see if you had any other photos of him or things like that. So in some ways I've stayed in in touch with them, but also because people are older, they don't necessarily have email or cell phones. So sometimes I receive a written letter, which is always really lovely. <laughs> but it, I worked with over 100 veterans to for this project. So it's some people are a little bit more communicative, but it's also really difficult for me personally to stay on top of keeping in contact with so many people over such a long period of time. I know those documents become so precious because of that timeline, you know, that everybody is quite elderly, must be wonderful to have um, 
I mean, what a wonderful project. Have they invited any of you, you know, come back to visit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've, I'm pretty sure I'm welcome to come back to any of the communities. Uh, and yeah, the, there's one family that's in Cody, Nebraska, the Fullertons and the whole family's involved in the Legion and Jerry Fullerton and his wife, Kate and their granddaughter a few years ago, were traveling to Indiana and they said, Oh, we're, we're coming through Chicago and, I had them stay at my apartment, so it was a little bit of a cross-cultural exchange, which was really nice because they got to meet my family. So I spent so much time with their family and on their ranch and riding their horses and seeing their cattle and all of this. So it was kind of cool for them to come and see where I live and have a little bit of a exchange in that way kind of a culture shock from the from the plains of nebraska to chicago but that must be really interesting so any projects you're working on that are coming up or in the the mix or things you're looking forward to doing through the pandemic i have been working with one of my best friends nina fail she also helped me with the american legion project and with modern david uh during the pandemic she moved to her family's property in rural Alabama. And it's a actual ghost town in <laughs> called Thale Town, Alabama. So I've been working on a little bit of a project with her about healing ancestral trauma and identity and being in a rural space. I really do enjoy being in rural spaces. So that's been lovely to work with her on. And I've also been working on a project of a more personal nature with my biological grandmother, who I reconnected with uh, after not really knowing her for most of my life. I've been spending time with her at her home in Florida and working on project with her about my own identity and my own family history of a part of the family that I didn't know about because my mother was adopted. So it was something that we didn't even know she was adopted until she was 50. Wow. Sounds very emotional. Yeah, very good. Um, we have a little over a minute left, but uh, tell us about any other upcoming exhibits you have. And of course, this exhibit, this is it, a human center view of us. I already opened November 17th because the show will be airing in December, but uh, I know the opening was great and everything. But tell us about some projects you might have in the short term and websites and how people can find your work. Yeah, they can find my work on my website. It's mariahcarson.com. Uh, it's Carson with a K. <laughs> You can go on there and see some of my other work, as well as purchase a copy of American Legion, which will also be available at the South Shore Arts Center uh, during the This Is It exhibit. I will be doing an artist talk on January 5th at the South Shore Arts Center. So I would invite anybody from the community to come and see the show, which is a really wonderful range of topics from some really fantastic photographers. And we'll be talking about the American Legion and my work with veterans and photography in general. 
Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air and sharing. That's Mariah Carson. The exhibit dates, well, it opened on November 11th. It'll be going through January 8th, and this is it. It's uh, have panel discussions. Uh, you can contact South Shore Arts about information about that. See Mariah's work and, uh, of course, the other artists that are there. Mariah, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mariah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. We'd like to thank our guests this week on Art on the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at WVLP.org, and every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, also streaming live at LakeshorePublicRadio.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Radio. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. We would like to thank our current supporters and underwriters, which include regional art patron Mary LeVan and Walt Bredinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art on the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or sending us information about your arts, arts-related event, or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. Or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art. And show the world your heart, express yourself to art. And show the world your heart, express yourself.